Let us turn to our Old Testament lesson in Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. It should be found on page 59 in our few Bibles or 114 in the large print. Exodus 18, uh, 13 through 27. This is after the people of Israel have actually come out of slavery in Egypt. They are not yet to the promised land. In fact, they're not even... um, quite to Mount Sinai yet. And we have an incident. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the word that you have given to us. We pray that you would help us to be attentive to your word. That we would, uh, that we would read it, that we would hear it. And God, that it wouldn't be in one ear and out the other. But Lord, that it would um, stick with us that we would be changed by it. Or that we would be, uh, be those who live every moment, understanding our place in your story. God, we pray that you would increase our knowledge, not so that we would be more knowledgeable as an in and itself, but that the more we know, the more we would know who you are. Truly, that our misconceptions would be gone. The more we know you truly, the more we would know your love for us and for your people. That we would learn what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. To truly trust in your ways and not our ways. That we would be your people and that you would be our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 18, starting in verse 13. It says, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. This is the story is mentioning in the children's sermon. can be found on page 881 in your 
Pew Bibles of 1686 in large print. On the very day that Jesus was raised from the dead, this is what it says. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have been looking at the book of Acts lately, and in the book of Acts, we have seen something pretty remarkable in that the the disciples that we just saw in John being afraid on the night, or yeah, the very evening that Jesus was raised from the dead, we see that completely transformed. And so in these early chapters of Acts, what we've seen is the disciples empowered with the boldness of the Holy Spirit to go out and preach even to the very people who had killed Jesus. And they didn't even mince words. They, right to their faces, were like, oh, by the way, you killed Jesus. In case anybody has forgotten, that's what's happened. And so we see this boldness of the uh, disciples, these very same people who were so afraid, now empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak with boldness and to tell everybody about Jesus. Today, we're going to see what happens as the church grows and expands because that's what's happening. And we saw that even on the day of Pentecost, that very first uh, day when the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, Peter gets up and preaches And the church grows exponentially. They go from about 120 believers one day to, you know, about 3,000 the next day. It's it's pretty big, pretty fast. Well, it continues. And so, like, almost every chapter after that, like, and it continues to grow. And it continues to grow. And that's where we are today. So how do do they handle that and what happens afterwards? We're looking at Acts chapter 6, the whole thing. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. 
when they secretly pers- then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I hope that sounds like a little bit of a cliffhanger. Because it kind of is. And we will see next week what ends up happening from here. But the reason we keep all of chapter 6 together like this is because it's really easy to, uh, to look at the first half of the chapter, draw principles from that. Look at the second half of the chapter, draw principles from that, and miss how they're connected. So we're going to look at all of it together today. And here's the first part. The first part is a lot of times we look back at the early church in Acts and we say, wouldn't it be great if we could just go back to how they were doing things in the early days of Acts? Wouldn't it be great? Because back then they had no problems. Everybody got along perfectly. And there are times where that was the case. And there are times when that was not the case. (laughs) And this is one of those times where we have, you know, we see people had been bringing their uh, possessions and giving it to the apostles. The apostles were making sure they get it distributed to those who were in need. But now we find out, well, there's so many people who are coming and there are so few apostles that it's not working out. In fact, the you know, apostles are doing the best they can, but it seems like there are some groups that are getting left out, who are getting overlooked. And, um, and these are the widows, those who are in need, and they're still being overlooked. And so people bring the complaint to the apostles, and how do the apostles handle it? They don't just say, look, we are doing the best we can. If everybody could just be patient, we will get to them eventually. No. (laughs) They say, well, let's get together and figure out how we can do this better so nobody gets overlooked. And what they decided, as a whole, is we're going to turn this responsibility over to somebody else. We're not going to hold on to this and say, well, you know, we're going to do it, and it's got to be ours, and we're the only ones who know how to do it right, so, you know, everybody else leave us alone. No, we're going to share this. And we're going to have other people who will be responsible for this to make sure that this is not getting overlooked. And so what we see here is um, not so much a separation or even a specialization, but a prioritization of proclamation and administration. See if you remember all that. (laughs) We have proclamation of the word and prayer. And we also have uh, administration of those of the ministry, making sure that people get the physical needs met, those who are in need. And it is a prioritization. Like I say, it's not so much specializing, it's not separating these out completely. And we know that because the very next thing we hear is that one of the people who's chosen to, to deal with the administration, the next thing we see him doing is performing signs and wonders, encountering opposition from other people, and then preaching uh, a very long sermon. And he was one of the ones that had been set aside for the administration part, not the proclamation part. So these are not completely separate roles. But it's a priority. We need to make sure that there are some people who are making it a priority to meet the needs of the people who are in need 
physically. But we don't want to do that to the exclusion of the priority of making sure that the word of God is still being preached and proclaimed and that we are still being reminded of why it is we're doing all this to begin with. And if we look back at um, what we read in Exodus, what Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, the advice that he gave him, it wasn't, look, you can't handle this, so just go grab the first ten people you see off the street and say, you are now a judge, you are now a judge. But he said, what you are to do is you are to be teaching the people so they will be able to do this without having to come to you for everything. And then as you teach the people what it is that God has said and how it is that they are to live, then you will, there are going to be people who you can pick who are. He gave him some qualifications there. Don't just pick anybody. But select capable men, men who fear God, and trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them. So pick these people, qualified people. And what is it that qualifies them? Is that they actually have this relationship with God and that they... Uh, want to live right with him and by him. That is what qualifies them. It says, then, put them in these positions. Well, this is what we see with Stephen and with the others, that when the apostles say, okay, look, here's what we're going to do, they pick people, people to be involved in administration. And those people who are going to be involved in administration have certain qualifications. He says, um, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to have the best degrees from the Ivy League universities in management and... That's not it. That is not what it says. It says, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. That's the requirement. Be full of the spirit and wisdom who have a relationship with God, who are operating, trusting him. And actually, wisdom is not just having the knowledge, but knowing how to put that into practice in a good way. And so take people, find these people who have the spirit of God and wisdom. Pick seven of those. That's who you want to do this. And have them make it a priority to make sure nobody's getting missed in having their physical needs addressed. And then, as the apostles... They say, now what we're going to do is we're going to continue praying for all that's going on. And we're going to continue preaching and proclaiming and even teaching the people who are involved in administration so they don't forget why they're doing what they're doing. And so both of these work well together, and neither one is completely separate. And in fact, that's one of the things we see here is uh, the reason this is even mentioned at all is just to let us know who this Stephen is. Because we're getting ready to see in the weeks to come that Stephen is getting ready to die for his faith. He is one of the ones known as you know, the first Christian martyr. Martyr is actually a word that uh, it, it comes from a word that just means witness. Because people who were witnessing for Jesus were being killed so much because of it that that word became synonymous. Stephen's the first one. And the question we have is, well, who is this guy? Where did he come from? How was he able to do what he did? Why was he able to rise to the occasion when it was his turn? And I've actually heard a uh, guy by the name of Todd Bolsinger, and I don't know if this is original to him or if he got it from somebody else. He said, you know, when, uh, when a crisis comes, 
people don't rise to the occasion. They default to their training. When crisis comes, people don't rise to the occasion. They default to their training. And this is something we know. And it's why we spend time practicing things in the off-season. Because we know that it's not in the game that you win the game. It's in all the practices that come before when you're training yourself and then in the game is when it comes into action. Uh, In fact, they've done studies on why it is that people choke in high-pressure situations. You know why it is that people choke in high-pressure situations? You know, the the big game comes, and you've got to hit this free throw, and and you miss. And you're like, you're making 90% of your free throws. How are you missing these? You know what they figured out? It's because people weren't defaulting to their training. They were trying to override their training and say, this is where it counts, and I've got to really stress and get it right. And by doing that, they would not go to their training, and they miss. And it happens over and again. And so what they have to coach people to do is when those situations come, don't worry about how big the moment is. Just do what you've done. You may remember, and I know I'm using a lot of sports analogies, but that's just too bad. So in, uh, you may remember the movie Hoosiers. It's a classic scene. The movie Hoosiers about a uh, high school basketball team. And Gene Hackman, I believe, is the coach in this movie, and he takes the kids uh, they're playing the, the big game at the big school, and they've been in small games at small schools up until this point. And he takes them to the, uh, to the arena where they'll be playing. They go out on the court, and there's nobody in there. And everybody's just, they walk in wide-eyed. Oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. And he has them measure all these different things, and measure the height of the basketball goal. Measure and his whole point in this is what you're getting ready to do, yeah, there may be higher stakes but it's the same thing you've been doing. Just keep doing what you've been doing. Keep doing the training you've had. What we see with Stephen is we have people who are out to get him. And we might ask ourselves, what in the world would I do if this were to happen to me? What is it that I would do if people drag you in front of others and they start making false accusations about you and saying, this is what they're doing, and you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that at all. What are you going to do? Likely, we'd be ready to freak out. So Stephen, they looked at him intently and said his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know how many angels you have seen recently. I don't know exactly what it means that his face was like the face of an angel, but I'm pretty sure, whatever that means, it doesn't mean that he was freaking out. It doesn't mean that he was panicking and fearful. But probably something more along the lines of he was at peace or that he was ready. How is it that Stephen is like this in the midst of this high-pressure situation? That's why we have the story from earlier. That's why, and this is how it ties in with us. How can we be ready? Because of what it's saying of who he is earlier. Here's who he is. It gives us a few descriptions. One, it says uh, that he, he was chosen as one who, in verse 3, said, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. So we know that about him. Because he was one of the people who was known for being full of the spirit and of wisdom. Then, when it says, okay, so they chose seven people, they 
talk about a couple of them. One of them is Stephen. It says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. All right. And then in verse 8, we mention him one more time. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, went on doing these things, performing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was not just some guy who got dragged off and then suddenly had to rise to the occasion. Stephen is a guy who has been living a relationship with God day in and day out. This is why it was that he was selected to be one of these seven men and responsible for administration of the gifts. He had been one who had been living by faith and had been seeing God at work in all the small things day after day after day after day so that when it became a big moment, he didn't have to freak out. In fact, he sees something they don't see. He knows what it means to walk with God and trust him in all those little things. So now when it becomes a big thing, his face is like the face of an angel. One who sees the face of the Heavenly Father and says there's nothing to fear. We will cover what all he says in response. But for today, I want us to keep in mind what it means to do the little things day in and day out to have that relationship with God through Jesus that we are walking by faith daily, depending on and trusting in the Holy Spirit to prepare us today for whatever we're going to face tomorrow. We don't know what it is. He knows. So trust that the situations you face today, walk through them in faith, that he is preparing you today for what you'll face tomorrow. So when that day comes, your face will be that of an angel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.